0: Well, we're in the book of Galatians. If you need a copy of the lesson, if, uh, you don't have one, you can slip your hand up. The will be right by and give that to you so that you can have that. We're actually in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you, we'll look in Galatians chapter 3. If you're watching by live stream, you might want to get your Bible open up to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 18 and so I'm just going to read our text verse, uh, which is verse 17, and because we're going to be going verse by verse and reading the chapter and making comments on each of the verses as we study together. But in chapter 3 of Galatians, in verse 17, tells us for uh, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after. Cannot disannul that it should make the promise of non effect. And so we're talking about our liberty in Christ, our Christian liberty in the book of Galatians. And tonight we're looking at Paul's defense of the covenant. And so the Apostle Paul certainly is continuing his instruction about justification by faith. We looked at that last week. And we're not justified by our works or by our giving or any other things, but we are justified before God uh, by our faith in Jesus Christ. He makes the comparison between faith and the law in the, old, in the last chapter and certainly in chapter 3 he carries that idea through in his, his instruction to the Galatians of making that comparison of faith versus the law and uh, sometimes we get into a a debate about that oftentimes people are questioning about that Uh, they think the only way they can be saved is by doing good things or by keeping the commands of god but in reality is that if you violate one point of the law you're guilty of the whole law so we need something that's greater than just saying i'm going to obey what god said And that is where faith comes in. So he establishes that the law, first of all, was added because of transgression. In verse 19 of chapter three, he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And so the, tra- the law was added for the purpose of dealing with the transgression of man. Man had violated the very principles the moral character of God. And so how do you know that? Well, the law states it. Uh, you know, the, uh, Paul would say, I would not have known uh, sin except that the law said thou shalt not covet. And so the law was added because of transgression. But it also, in verse 22, of chapter 3 it was given to convince men of the necessity of a Savior notice in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22 says but the scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe and so because of the transgressions of man to miss the mark of God Uh, they needed to be convinced or convicted, if you will, that they needed a Savior. You try to lead people to the Lord, and they were like, well, I don't need to be saved. And uh, you say, well, yeah, well, the Bible says that you accept me and be born again. Yeah, but I'm a good person. And so they have this defense, this false defense that they don't need to be forgiven. They don't need to be born again. Uh, Because they perceive themselves as being a keeper of the commands or the laws of God. When in reality, they've transgressed God's law. And it's the scriptures, it's the law that convinces them that they are literally in need of a savior. And so then in verse 24, we see another aspect of the law. It was designed as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Notice in verse 24, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so uh, literally the schoolmaster means to be under the tutelage of someone else. And so the law was there and so designed that it might not just show us our moral uh, shortcomings, And it convinces that we need a savior, but it was given so that it might direct us to Jesus Christ. And oftentimes people will look to a religion, they'll look to a movement or whatever to try to find satisfaction in their life for the things that they are uh, coming short on and and the lack of peace that's in their hearts. But the law of God was so designed to bring us to Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to do. We need to point people towards Christ. So let's look in chapter 3 and go through this, uh, just a few of these verses. In verses 1 through 5, I see that there are six questions that are asked. And whenever the Bible asks a question, you need to answer the question. And so there's six questions that are asked. Notice in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. So the first question that is presented in this chapter is who hath bewitched you? Now that's a strong statement because the word bewitched there means to bring evil on somebody. And so when uh, we are uh, brought Away from Christ, we are driven away from the Lord. We are enticed to believe other things than what the scripture has to say. Uh, realize this, you are being bewitched. And so your uh, evil is coming upon you. And Paul says, now wait a minute. Uh, he starts out chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he deals with the strength of the reality that they were saved. They knew they were saved. They had trusted in Christ. But he's now he's saying, well, wait a minute. Something happened. What caused you to turn your back away from the Lord? And I, I think when we start to feel uh, uh, less excited about Christ, we start feeling that we don't need to read our Bible. We, don't, we start thinking in reference to uh, other means and other ways that are, are possible of going to heaven. You need to identify the enemy. Who has bewitched you? The evil one comes, he is a liar from the beginning, and he tries to draw us away from Christ. And so Paul's wanting to get them back on track. They were drifting, they were moving away uh, from the Lord. And he says, you need to identify where did this evil come upon you? And it is evil when we take and have to deal with uh, moving away from Christ. And he says, so he says, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And so, two aspects of this matter of obeying the truth here. First of all, it's objective. In other words, truth ha- is there by instruction. We know faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so, when we talk about truth, we live in a, a, a time in history where people wanna say there's no absolute truth. And basically, they take a position the only absolute, only there's no absolute truth except for my belief that there's no absolute truth. And, uh, but the reality is, truth is objective. There has to be some basis or some foundation for presenting that truth. And so he says, somebody's uh, bewitched you and brought you to a point of disobeying and ignoring the instruction that you received in reference to who Christ is. So this matter of obeying truth is objective. There's there's an object or a direction in which we uh, put uh, put our uh, faith in and what we stand on. So it's objective. But it's also subjective. Truth is subjective. And by that, what I mean is that we experience truth. There's things that we go through, and uh, and uh, it uh, confirms the fact that it is true. And so, truth has two aspects of it: objective, is, which is learning by instruction, but subjective is learning by truth. I mean, by experience. Now, what's pro- the problem? Is this many people uh, elevate experience? above instruction I remember years ago I was witnessing to a lady when I was in Bible college and uh, she was uh, believed in uh, was speaking in tongues and I was talking to her and I went through the scriptures and I went through Corinthians I went through book of Acts we went through and we did a, I did a study with her and uh, we were in the Detroit Airport we were working with a limousine service she was a driver I was a driver we had some downtime And I went through this whole thing with her about how tongues would cease and why tongues are not for the day and what tongues really are in the scriptures. And after about 35 minutes of talking with this woman, her response to me was this, well, Michael, I see where you're coming from and I see what the word of God has to say, but you have to understand what I experienced. So I told her, I said, what you just said was that you elevate experience above instruction. And so you elevate the subjective aspect of truth above the objective basis of truth. And you're starting with the wrong foundation. Experience cannot outweigh the instruction. And so we must study the word of God and find... So Paul says, wait a minute, somebody bewitched you. Somebody tripped you up here because they have brought you to a point where you're not obeying truth based on the instruction objectivity of the Word of God, but rather you're being drawn into the experiential type of faith. And J. Vernon McGee, I like what he says. You have his quote in your notes. It says, There are many people today who reason from experience to truth. I personally believe that the Word of God reasons from truth to experience. Experience is not to be discounted, but it must be tested by faith. And so if I experience some emotional experience, whatever it may be, uh, that doesn't mean it necessarily is coming from God. And that's why John says, believe not every spirit, but try the spirit, whether it be of God. So just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it's right. Just because you experience something doesn't mean it's from God. And so the experience has to be tried and tested based on the truth of the word of God. And so instruction has to outweigh experience. But, and let me say this. Whenever the instruction is correct, there is always the right experience. And so uh, he says, who hath bewitched you? Notice the second question he asks is in verse 2. He says, this only what I learn of you, received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so he confronts them with a very important question. Uh, Have you received the spirit of works by the law or have you uh, experienced it by faith? In Ephesians chapter one in verse 13, we'll just turn over a couple of pages, Ephesians one and 13, uh, tells us this it says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the question is very simplistic How did you receive the Spirit of promise? How did you receive the Spirit of work? Was it by the law? By you doing things to appease God? Or was it by faith and faith alone? And certainly we receive that by faith and faith alone. For by one spirit are you all baptized into one body, whether you be bond or free, Paul tells us. And so that was by faith, believing in Christ, we received the spirit of works in our life, in our hearts, That changed us. So he makes them make a a decision. Think about how you receive the spirit of God. Think about how you have the spirit and desire to work and serve the Lord. Uh, Is it all about works? Was it all about keeping the law? Because the reality is you violated the law. So it couldn't be by the law. It had to be by faith. And so he keeps building this concept. Then he asks them in verse 3, he says... Are ye so foolish? Are ye so foolish? He literally is asking this Have you not been instructed? I, I mean, sometimes, and I, I try to be gentle, I try to be kind, and uh, some people don't think that, but I do try. I don't necessarily mean I do, it just means I try. Uh, it, the, the people sometimes I feel like saying, What did you study? What have you read? Are, are, you, are, you, are you just responding just out of experience and out of ignorance? Do you He literally is saying this: Do you remain unintelligent? Uh, I remember Dr. Malone used to say about uh, different people. He used to say they were educated point, past the point of intelligence. And you look at the world in which we live in, and I'm thinking the decisions that people are making and leaders are imposing on us, and I, often I, I look at it and I say, are you so foolish? And yet we make decisions about that as far as our children many times. Uh, well, am I, I'm gonna let my kids be involved in this and be a part of this. Are you really that foolish? Can, can you expect, listen, I, I heard a preacher on the radio say this, how, why is it that Christian parents think they can turn their kids over to Caesar and end up not having children who are Romans? And I thought, now that's pretty good. Because, listen, you can't, I don't understand why it is that we think we can invest in one thing that opposes what we believe, and the outcome's going to be what we believe. It's not going to be that way. And so Paul is saying this, are you, are you that really, really, are you that foolish that you, that you live and you're making decisions not based on instruction, but you're making it based on ignorance? Are you so foolish? Notice in verse 3 also, he makes a question, he gives this question, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And so he's really putting them on the spot. It's it's interesting how he's doing this because he's not just telling them this is what you have to believe. He's asking them, why is it you believe what you believe? And it's good sometimes for us not to just preach at people or tell people, but ask people questions. And so he says, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You think about it, Does, does the flesh make you perfect? I was talking to someone this afternoon. We were talking about what our life was without Christ, and I'll tell you, my wife has often said that uh, she's, "Oh, I wish we we didn't meet meet 'til I, like, I think 23, and uh, something like that." And I'm going to get it wrong, and then she's going to yell at me. Amen. But uh, whatever the age was, she said, "I wish I knew you when you were younger." When you were younger, and I was like, "No, you don't. You would not want anything to do with me uh, if you knew me when I was younger." And, uh, and so what happens is we start making decisions based on Christ saves us, he changes us, and then we start making decisions based on the desires of the flesh. Was it the flesh that made you good? Was it the flesh that made you perfect? And he's making them face that. So here, here's a thought here. I'll put these two different aspects down. Can the end be different than the beginning? he's basically saying, now, wait a minute, you were in the flesh and you got saved. And he'll address that in chapter five. If you walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I'll identify the works of the flesh and I'll identify the fruits of the spirit. But the question he's asking here, are you made perfect by the flesh? In other words, can you expect the end of your life to be different from what the beginning is? If you're living in the flesh, that's what the end of your life is going to be in the flesh. You can't sow to the flesh and expect spiritual experience. the other, the flip side of that, is can the beginning meet the need in the end? And so if we start out our life walking in the flesh there's absolutely no way we're going to become at, to the end of our life and be spiritual perfect beings in the presence of God because we begin in the flesh. And so, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so he's making them face that principle. Are you made perfect by the flesh? And of course the answer is no. Uh, Our flesh deceives us. Our flesh is corrupt. Our flesh is sold under sin. And so we need something far greater and far better. Then in verse 4, he asks the question, notice in verse 4, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? So he's asking, now the things that you have gone through, uh, is it that you're coming up empty-handed? The things that you suffered, is it in vain? They had suffered for their faith. You understand, in the first century Christianity, it, it wasn't a cakewalk. First century Christianity, they, they suffered greatly. Their, their faith is, was always being put on trial. And so he says, oh, wait a minute, have you gone through these things in vanity? Have you gone through these things only to end up empty? It is our faith that enables us to go through these things in our life and not come in the end empty. What shall profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so what good is it for me to gain everything that the world has to offer in the flesh and to come to the end of my life and just be empty, be vain? And so he's confronting them with that. Notice, not only that, but in verse 5, he asks a question. It's a lengthy question. He says, He, therefore, that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? So he keeps drawing this comparison between the works of the law and between uh, uh, the, the works of faith. And so he says, okay, you say you got this one that's ministering to you. You got this one that's uh, uh, doing miracles among you. Uh, now, how did he do it? How, how did that come about? Was it by the law or was it by faith? Now, Paul, this is interesting. Paul did not come to them as a Pharisee preaching the law. Back in uh, Philippians, uh well. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul gives his pedigree. He says he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what Paul's life was without Christ. That's what Paul's life was when he was trying to live according to the law. But now as Paul is dealing with them, he preached unto them Christ. He preached unto them the fullness of the Spirit of God. And he's basically saying this, did I come preaching the law? If anybody had the credentials to boast about and proclaim the working of the law, it was the Apostle Paul. But he did not come uh, by preaching the law. Paul, as a Pharisee preaching the law, Paul did come to them as an apostle preaching Christ. And it's amazing to me how much Paul would be on topic and on target in proclaiming who Jesus Christ is to this church, the church that he persecuted. And so he said, now, wait a minute, you need to identify Uh, How did I come ministering? Uh, How did I come working miracles? It wasn't by the law. It was by Christ and Christ alone. So he deals with this whole concept here of six questions. Now that he has their attention, now in verse 6 through 12, he presents to them Abraham. Abraham evaluated. Notice in verse 6. He says, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so he uh, confronts them with the reality that Abraham was accepted by faith. He was not accepted by the law, he was not accepted by works, and he was accepted by God by faith. Now, listen, he could not be accepted by the law. And the reason is this the Mosaic law was not given until 400 years later. Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. Abraham didn't have the Pentateuch. Abraham didn't have the law of God presented to him. And yet, but Abraham was accepted of God, and he was accepted of God because of his faith. Now, the children of Israel would boast that they had Abraham as their father. Certainly, Galatians as a, a Gentile uh, people uh, certainly was aware of Abraham's working in their life. And he said, now, wait a minute. I want you to understand Abraham, he was accepted of his God, and uh, he believed as God. And that was how he was imputed the righteousness of God. It was by faith and not by the law. But also... Uh, it could not have been by circumcision. So he was not accepted of God because of the law, nor by circumcision, because circumcision was not commanded of him until you get over to Genesis chapter 17. And so everything in reference to the relationship of Abraham with God he's presenting to these Gentiles is in reference to Abraham's simple faith to believe God, and because he believed God, uh, he was counted as righteous before God. So it was not the work of the flesh. It was not the committing to the law. It was walking in faith and faith alone. And if we want to be right with God. We want to be blessed by God. We want the righteousness of God in our life. It's going to take faith and faith alone. Notice in verse 7, he talks about uh, Abraham's accepted by faith, but he's associated with by faith. In verse 7 says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And so he really wipes away any opportunity to be able to try to be justified by the law. And uh, certainly he is laying the foundation uh, as he builds this defense of the covenant of God, the covenant that is signed in the blood of Christ with us. He's pointing them. It is not about the covenant that was made through the law of Moses. It's the covenant that was experienced through the sacrifice of Christ. Because everything about Abraham, whether it was being accepted or whether his associations, was based on his faith. Notice in verse 8 and uh, 9, Abraham was acquired by faith. In verse 8 it says and the scripture foreseeing that God would justi- justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying in thee shall all nations be blessed so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Well how is that faith acquired by the Gentile nations? How is that faith experienced? First of all by the example of his son. Uh, God would bless Abraham with a son, and we know that son was Isaac, and Isaac would be a type of Christ because of the fact that uh, uh, God would bless him with a son, a promised seed. uh, It was a miraculous birth uh, that it would be the son that Abraham would love, and God would call on him to take him on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. So the example of a son, number two there, is the atonement of the sacrifice. And Isaac would ask, where is the, the sacrifice? And, God, and Abraham would say, God shall provide himself a lamb. He shall provide a sacrifice. And so it's a faith to believe that God had his only begotten son that would come into this world and be that sacrifice. And then the action was in full surrender. James speaks about Abraham having faith to surrender uh, to the command of God to offer up his son, believing that God, even if he did slay him, God would raise him up again. And so the, the whole aspect of the Gentile nations, the whole aspect of Israel also being able to be saved by faith is based on the revelation of who Abraham it was and what Abraham did in reference to faith and works. I like this quote in your notes there. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, if you have faith, there's going to be some action to it. J. Vernon McGee puts it this way. He states in reference to Paul's and James' writings, Uh, They are saying the same thing. One is looking at faith at the beginning. The other is looking at faith at the end. One is looking at the root of faith. The other is looking at the fruit of faith. The root of faith is faith alone saves you. But that saving faith will produce works. And so Galatian believers had the same problem that we have in the church today. You always have somebody coming along, some wide eyed, pie eyed person come in, think right away, uh, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. You got you to repent. I, I, somebody called me and they were like, uh, well, uh, you know, I want to know, do you preach repentance? I said, yes, I preach repentance. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Oh, amen. I like that. I said, however. I do not preach that you have to do something to get saved. The repentance that man experiences is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And it's the faith that God instills in the heart of man to repent that causes him to work. And you always want to be adding things to it. No, faith stands alone, but a faith that is alone is going to have works. In other words, there is an evidence to what God's working in the person who has faith in Christ. And so we see that pattern in Abraham. Well, quickly, in verse 10 through 12, we see the accountable by faith. Accountable in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, Curses everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so, once again, that whole concept of you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. If you're going to live under the law, then you understand you have to keep every jot and tittle of the law. There is no leeway, there is no grace to say you can violate this command, but hold to all these other commands verse 11 says but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of god it is evident for the just shall live by faith then in verse 12 it says and the law is not of faith but the man that doeth them shall live in them and so if you want to live by the law then you understand the bondage and the accountability that you have to that law. But what about the accountability of faith? Here, I put in your notes there, to hold to the law means you must hold to it continually. If you want to hold to the law as a means of being saved, don't let go, because as soon as you let go, you're lost. So you have to hold to it continually. To hold to faith, however, is to recognize that the law and faith are different and not the same. It is faith that delivers, that gives power to be able to fulfill the law in our life. But to live in the realm of the law only is you cannot violate one portion, not one moment can you uh, neglect to fulfill the law. So Abraham evaluated. Well, verse 13 through 18, we see Christ exalted. I love the Apostle Paul. He always wants to lift up the name of Christ. Notice, first of all, in verse 13, that Christ becomes the curse. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Because we had talked, he already talked about it. If you're going to hold to the law, you're cursed. If you're going to try to hold to the law, because you can't keep the whole law. But Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he tells us How? Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so Jesus Christ became that sacrifice. He died in our place. He took all of the curse of man's sin upon himself so that he might be able to remove us. He, listen, he took our sin on him so that he would give us his righteousness. And so Christ becomes a curse. The Gentile receives a blessing. Notice in verse 14. Why did it become a curse? That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so the Gentiles are blessed. I never forget that. You know, if there's any reason why we should support Israel... I'll tell you, we need to support them because through Israel came the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. And you and I are saved tonight because of the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world. And uh, the promises and the covenants that were made with Israel are fulfilled in Christ. And because of that, we as Gentiles can be saved. So the Gentile receives a blessing. Notice in verse 15, the covenant stands binding. It says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. And so in other words, the covenant that God promised that he would make, the promise that he made to us in reference to his son coming, cannot be undone by man. And so man can try to live according to the law all he wants, but he can't undo the covenant that was signed in the blood of Christ. Then in verse 16, notice verse 16 it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise was made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to that, that and I'm sorry, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so the seed is but one, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying this. He didn't make multiple ways of sacrifice. He made one way. And there's only one seed, and that is the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we see that with uh, Abraham. God rejected Ishmael because he wasn't the promised seed. Abraham had two sons, But those sons, only one of them was the promised seed, which was Isaac. And then we see the promise fulfilled in verse 17 and 18. The promise fulfilled. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of non effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God made it to Abraham by promise. And so how do we hold to this whole concept of the law of God versus faith is, wait a minute, the law is complete in Christ. And being complete in Christ, uh, we have the ability to have faith that changes our life and changes our course because of the fact now we can be right with God through Christ and Christ alone. He is the promised seed. In, in 2 Corinthians, no, I guess we're getting Second Corinthians. I'm in the wrong book here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in uh, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 1 and 20, says, For all the promises of God in him, that's in Christ, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. And so the promise is fulfilled in Christ. He is the true one. He is the eternal son. He is the sacrifice that was illustrated in Abraham's sacrifice of his own son and uh, the promises that God made to him in reference to the promised seed that would come. And so uh, he is defending here the covenant of God through Christ. The covenant of God with man is not through the Old Testament law, The Old Testament law shows us that we need Christ. And then as we need Christ, uh, we surrender our life completely and totally to him. Well, I hope that was a blessing to you. I put some uh, cross-references in the lesson. You can look up and uh, check them out. Um, We need to pray together. First of all, if you did not get one of these membership or attendee data cards,